Welcome to Rust Belt Abolition Radio, my name is Andres. In today's episode, Abolition in the Commons, we explore the relationship between the abolitionist horizon and the defense, extension, and reinvention of the commons. We speak with author and historian Peter Leinbaum about the ways the carceral state is founded upon enclosure and dispossession, and about hidden histories of collective resistance. Our second guest is Reverend Edward Pinckney, imprisoned activist and community leader, who speaks about his experience of fighting racist enclosure and dispossession in Benton Harbor, state repression, and the possibilities for building collective power. We conclude the episode with a poem from Colleen, an incarcerated abolitionist in a Michigan prison. But first, here's Kev Sayed with some news you may have missed. On April 17th, Palestinian Prisoners' Day, approximately 1,500 Palestinian political prisoners held by the Israeli state have engaged in an open-ended hunger strike demanding basic rights and an end to abuse. Rallies erupted in every major Palestinian city as a show of solidarity to those caged by the settler colonial state. There are currently about 6,500 Palestinian political prisoners locked up across six Israeli prisons. Communications from these prisons has been cut off by Israeli authorities, and one prisoner so far has died. On April 21st, the Michigan Abolition Alliance held a speak-out and demonstration in Detroit in opposition to plans to build a new jail in Wayne County. This speak-out followed an action by the Alliance that shut down a county commissioner meeting on the new jail plans. Several people impacted by the carceral state spoke out, including Mertilla Jones, the grandmother of Ayanna Jones, a seven-year-old girl who was murdered by the Detroit police in 2010. The protesters demanded an end to mass incarceration, and for the $400 million that is being allocated to be spent on a new jail be redirected toward community needs like schools, water, and housing. Brescia Meadows trial begins May 8th in Warren, Ohio. The Free Brescia campaign is calling for local court support and solidarity actions around the country. Brescia was just 14 years old when she was charged with aggravated murder and incarcerated for defending herself and her family against her abusive father. Check out News from the Streets at rustbeltradio.org for more on these news items. I'm A. Maria, here with Kate Sayed, and you're listening to Rust Belt Abolition Radio, an abolitionist media and movement-building project based in Detroit, Michigan. How does the practice of enclosure dispossess working people and enforce anti-blackness in our society? How do the commons play a role of resistance to the inhuman machine of racial capitalism? These are the kinds of questions abolitionists ask. Alejo Stark and David Langstaff spoke with historian Peter Leinbau about the role of capitalist enclosure in the rise of the carceral state, hidden histories of resistance, and the relationship between abolition and the defense and extension of the commons. Formerly the editor of Zero Work and member of the Midnight Notes Collective, Leinbau is perhaps best known for his writings in service of a history from below, from his acclaimed book with Marcus Redeker, The Many-Headed Hydra, the Hidden History of the Revolutionary Atlantic, to his more recent collection, Stop Thief, The Commons, Enclosures, and Resistance. My name is Peter Leinbaugh. For most of my life, I've been a scholar of working people and of the struggle against capitalism and imperialism. I've taught for more than 50 years and have been retired from university teaching for a year or two. You were telling us a little bit about your experience with teaching at Attica, as well as the social movements in the 70s, particularly around the Attica Rebellion. Can you talk a little bit about that, your involvement with with that? My prisoner movement did not 
begin with Attica. Remember, Attica started many causes, but one of them was the assassination of George Jackson in California. And George Jackson had been in prison he, and learned in prison from others. But as a 19-year-old, he had been incarcerated for robbery at a filling station. During his time in prison, there was a large movement across the United States of black power, of anti-imperialist aggression by the United States in Vietnam and a huge amount of turmoil and creative exchanges from factories to universities. And young people played a big role in this, and it was, on the whole, led by African-American people, men and women. So it's out of that ferment that we can understand Attica, and, but my own involvement in the prisoner movement had begun earlier, had preceded the Attica Rebellion. In the 50s, that was a real repressive environment, and we were able to begin to break out of it. And one way that we broke out of it, thanks very much to Malcolm X, was he called our attention to the fact that a huge amount of working and poor and oppressed people were incarcerated. And he showed us that an incarcerated brother could, by study, in his case, of the dictionary, and by exchanges with others, which he did in the Walpole Penitentiary in Massachusetts, they could transform themselves and begin to understand how their personal rebellion was connected with an emancipatory project, which in our era occurred in the colonial countries, you know, Algeria, Vietnam, Ghana. So it's out of that that we began to see that prisoners were part of the working class, were part of the proletariat. Can you tell us a little bit more about the rise of the penitentiary? What was its function? When does it emerge? And what does it have to do with what Marx refers to as the enclosure of the commons? The penitentiary means a place of penitence. So as the scholar Foucault put it, it is a punishment of the soul. And the way that they organize this punishment of the soul, the theory of it develops in the 1770s, the practice of it in the 1790s, the way they understand the punishment of the soul is to, to put you alone, to make you alone, to put you in a solitary confinement into a little cell. So that's on a monastic model that they had. So, of course, it drives people insane. Secondly, the way they wanted to organize the punishment of the soul was by incessant labor. They wanted you to work nonstop. So the penitentiary became a place of work and solitary. So that gets us to the next part of your question, which was, what is the relationship of the penitentiary to the enclosure of the commons? And there, let's remember that punishment used to be outside. It used to be, I mean, I'm not advocating we punish people outside anymore, certainly not by public hangings. Good Lord, you know, I just was reading about the Mancanto hanging in Minnesota. Everybody should know this. 1862, Abraham Lincoln signed 303 Dakota people were sentenced to death, and 38 of them were actually hanged outside, you know, vast crowds. What we call lynching stems from this outdoor punishment. And of course, what the effect of lynching and outdoor punishment is, is to brutalize those who are witnessing it. So it's a method of brutalizing the public and in the case of lynching, to teach racism. In the case of the Makato hangings, to teach racism against Native people. Yeah, no, it's frightful. Now, the relationship to the commons, of course, is that the Lakota people had commoned. That is, they shared the earth, 
They shared the hunt, and they shared the uses to which the hunt led. I'm just trying to indicate, to gesture to you, a commoning economy that's different from the settler economy that's brought in by European settlers. And their call is for enclosure. They want, first of all, to survey land. Secondly, to produce roads to it, so you can bring in armed forces. And thirdly, to put up walls or fences. Generally, the ruling institutions do not want us to know about the history of the commons. And we're taught that it's utopian. We're taught that it's just a figment of imagination. We're taught that it's pie in the sky. But actually, it's very, is living. And we know it as soon as it's taken away. So when Marx, Marx sees the origins of capitalism in the enclosure of common land, because agriculture in England and then in subsequent countries was not based upon private property, but it was based on community forms of subsistence. And the purpose of it was to meet human needs. The purpose of it was not to exchange commodities for profit. So it's fundamentally different principles, which is why capitalist regime now doesn't want us to know about commoning. And the role that the penitentiary plays in this is crucial because it is meant to teach people to stay away from the big house. It's a bogeyman that's put up. But of course, people end up in the penitentiary because you can't get money anymore. Once the commons has been enclosed, there's no subsistence except by being exploited. And you can only be exploited insofar as it produces surplus value for others. That's not just Marxist dogma. You know, you find that in classical economics. That's basic knowledge of how the world works. The penitentiary was always essential to that. Sometimes with, like, the convict lease system, which supplanted the slave regime of the South with leasing out convicts during the second half of the 19th century, the era of Jim Crow. So there's always been some labor. But generally, the, the factory, the architecture of the factory, the architecture of the penitentiary are very similar. And they're all based on the wall. This is why I speak of enclosure. So there's some corollaries directly in relation to the wall between the prison and enclosures and the creation of capitalism as a mode of relating and reproducing the social, right? In relation to that, how do we then think about what might be the relationship between the commons and abolition? Not only prison abolition, but abolition as a world in which there will be no borders, no walls, no cages. What do you make of abolition and the relationship they might have to the commons or refiguring the commons? Well, it's an essential question to ask. It's an essential question for us to figure out. This is the task of the present generation and the next generation. There is no answer or blueprint for it. As everyone knows, you can't abolish the penitentiary without changing the human beings who are in it. And you can't change the human beings who are in it without changes in the human beings who are without it. And the institutions of the human beings outside of the penitentiary, the schools, the factories, the, the jobs, the office, these have to change. The class relations of our institutions have to change. I say that, and I think that logic is on my side. I say that because I think that history is on my side. But I hesitate because nobody knows what institutions are going to have to change just as we changed serf labor or slave labor on the plantation on a mass scale. Surely we can change the penitentiary also on a mass scale. So sort of technically it's possible. These institutions can change. But if I'm right in the logic and the history that they're interlocked, 
they are going to be interlocked in the future as well. And if the USA and the UK were essential political entities for forming that interlocking social system, the question arises, what are we going to replace them with in our future? That the USA and the UK are no longer viable political entities that serve humanity. And we need to start thinking of something else. And that, that something else cannot be based on that class relation of oppression and exploitation, which George Jackson taught us about. Thank you, Peter, for this wonderful interview. Yeah, I've really liked your radio programs, and I can't praise it enough. A. Maria also spoke with Reverend Edward Pinckney, presently incarcerated at Brooks Correctional Facility as a consequence of the state repression he and other black community members faced in the wake of the Benton Harbor Uprising. Pinckney spoke to us about the struggle against enclosure and dispossession in Benton Harbor and about the importance of recognizing and exercising our collective power to resist. My name is Reverend Edward Pinckney. I'm calling from Brooks Prison in Muskegon, Michigan. The battle started in Benton Harbor. We had the uprising in the year 2003. And it was basically because Whirlpool attempted to take over not only the city of Benton Harbor, also the school system. And Banco, the Black Autonomy Network Community Organization, we decided that we was going to resist, that we was no longer going to allow them to do whatever they want, take land from the people. And they had a method that they did this. They would, they would come out and cut your water off. And once they cut your water off, they would condemn your building. Once they condemn your building, then they would, they would uh, take over. And they would tear buildings down left and right. And we decided that we was going to recess. We was not going to allow them to continue to take over the school. So we started picking in. So we decided that we was going to do something that, that, would, that, would, that would help stop them. We decided that one of the things we were going to do, the elected officials, at Bitton Harbor was working along with Whirlpool to help take over the city. And, and unfortunately, Bitton Harbor is a city that's 94% African-American. But yet and still, the elected officials were working with Whirlpool to help drive out the African-Americans that live inside Benton Harbor. Mm -hmm. So we had decided that we was going to do a recall. One of the commissioners, he was like the head honcho. His name was Glenn Yarborough. He was the person that was receiving the stipends underneath the table and distribute them to the other commissioners in order to get things done. She knew that we we had we had nobody to really help us other than the Black Autonomy Network organization. But they had the sheriff's department, they had the uh, uh, the court system, they had uh, Whirlpool, with all they find. They had an organization called Cornerstone Alliance, which was a middle person between the city commissioners and Whirlpool themselves. And they decided that you know they were used to want to win by landslide since they had invested so much money in him. But unfortunately, what we did, we went out and got people to vote absentee. We got over 300 people to vote absentee, and they gave us 300 votes ahead. That's when they realized that they were about to lose the election. So they came up with a gimmick. That gimmick was that Reverend Pinkney and the Black Autonomy Network Community Organization were buying votes for $5. They had one person to say that, that I paid him $5 to Markel Williams. And that started the sheriff's department going to each person's home, kicking in their doors, putting them on the floor at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, and bringing them in and trying to get them to say stuff that they was paid to vote. 
So they didn't, couldn't get anybody to say that they were paid to vote other than what Markel Williams said. So the sheriff's department decided they tried something different. They went out and tried to get people now to say that I was in possession of an absentee ballot. They got three people to say that they gave me the absentee ballot and they put me on trial. We had a couple of trials during that period of time. One of them ended up in a hung jury. The other one, they found me guilty. Also, during that process, they reversed the election. We had won the election. But unfortunately, the judge said since I was involved with it, Reverend Edward Pinkney was involved with it, that he was going to overturn the election and allow Lynn Gabriel to have his seat. And then during the trial, the second trial, they found me guilty. And they sentenced me to probation. But unfortunately, I wrote an article in the People's Tribune, and I quoted Deuteronomy. And it simply said, if you do not hearken to the voice of the Lord, that God do all the things that are right. And after that, they said it was a threat on the judge's life. And they sentenced me to three to ten years in prison. Very interesting, because people from all around the country came and joined me in that fight. The ACLU, the Lawyers Guild, Thomas Jefferson Law Center, the Catholic Church, uh, Michigan State University, University of Michigan, Wayne State Law Department, Northwestern Law Department. Everybody, you know, I had maybe, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 different colleges came in and now put in an amicable brief. And the good news was it, was it was overturned, which was very, very important through that process. But it also made them angry because now they had to come after me again and find a way to neutralize me and the people in Benton Harbor. But it's important that people understand the value of standing up for what's right. You see, if you're going to be an activist, you've got to be an activist who acts. And to me, there's nothing more important than that. we got to deal with this system. we got to show them who we are. I always tell people it's more of us than them. And we have to get that through our head because it's more of us than them and to stand up and stand up for what's right. A lot of times we allow them to push us around because we get intimidated. I'm here... I'm here, here in prison today, but I tell you one thing, I'm not mad, I'm not angry, I'm not upset, because I'm hoping that people will understand the value of standing up, and I miss my family, but this is for a cause that's even bigger than that. It shows that, you know, if we stick together, we can win. We close this episode with the poem Big Daddy, written and read by Colleen, an abolitionist who is currently incarcerated at the Winland's Huron Valley Prison in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Colleen's poem traces a genealogy that takes us from the emergence of capitalism as the enclosure of the commons and passes through the rise of the penitentiary to our present day. Big Daddy, whoever sows injustice reaps calamity, Proverbs. Big Daddy, I guess, got all the answers. England, 1777. Disagreeably rough, whipping, branding, hanging. Lawbreakers flip, lawmakers. Common song, no rank. Open flesh makes for live entertainment. No mercy. Answer, salvage the unsalvageable. New World, 1787. Ten years of incarceration. Pennsylvania Prison Society offers penitence. Quakers in her light. Souls worthy of simple prescription, dear fruit of solitude, elixir of knucklebone work, man's definite scheme, label classified control, Big Daddy's divineness decked out, United States, 1790, 13 years of revision, Philadelphia's Wall Street Jail, America's first prison, yet let 
Yes, let freedom ring in the city of brotherly love. Start an empire on the cracked liberty bell. Isolate social beings. Combine shoulder to shoulder. Crowds, human funk. Break down minds lost. Split imaging. Big Daddy, here is mercy. Hang them, pip them out like the 70s. New York, 1800. 23 years of installation. 19th century city dwellers. Dirty beggars. Sharing cement with overgrown rats. Institute permanently. Divided streams. Auburn versus Amira. Punishment versus reform. Politicians mind fucking. Auburn days, 1821. 44 years after slickness. Silence, no utterance of words. Don't recognize anyone. Antisocial training. Profit out of bone ache and work. Humanness separates into pieces. Rules engraved in metal bars. Blast, limb from limb. Big Daddy's proud and arrogant from ill-gotten gain. Successful creation torn apart into eye-hanging insanity. 1876, 99 years since the Declaration of Independence. Elmira Reformatory, penal obedience. Jump Street, sociable robot. Taint with the old wrist hardware. Can't control, just distract. Scare tactic, same as the street thug. 1930s, 153 years of instituting. New blood rehabilitation, more like habilitate. Social virus, no vaccine. Human expenditure reaps no benefits. Big Daddy wanders for food, his belly house for pain. 1960s, 183 years of distillation. Take him to the streets, halfway footing. Unleash show so being. Barbed wire scars still shadowed. Shake off, shake down. Raid, ravage, confiscate like snarling dogs in the dark. 1990s, 200 plus 13 years of pillory. Capitalism at its lofty peak. Starving for gain. Grimy prisoners, lying bitches. Smut-filled, rotten asses. Fat purses make for inhumanity. Big Daddy made his table. State stamped his bull's ass. There is no need for a bull from that table. 2015, 238 years since infestation. Devour state issue, human property, law and order for profit. Wickedly confused, hard down, ain't that his goal? Proud of walls, incoming, congestion, snotty malfunction, galvo marches on and on, crash dummy ritual, revenue to serve. The South Esky, the degree of civilization a society it exhibits is best determined by how it treats its prisoners. I am not the prison environment. I am a prison abolitionist. Thanks for tuning in. Check out our website at www.rustbeltradio.org. This show was co-produced by the Rust Belt Abolition Radio Team. Andres, E. Maria, David Langstaff, Kate Syed, and Alejo Stark. Original music by Bad Infinity.